Good morning. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Um, I, I'm Zach. I'm the associate minister here. And uh, man, Ben, you like preached a better sermon than uh, I think I've got prepared in five minutes. So uh, that was that was great. It's uh, fun to sit in the back of the room and see the kids from a different perspective this week. And uh, yeah, I was really encouraged by that. So thank you. Um, when I say infomercial, what comes to mind? I'm guessing that what you see in your head is similar to what I see in mine. There is a man probably speaking loudly, uh, maybe to the point where you are borderline uncomfortable because it seems like he's just yelling at you, but he's not mad. He's just really, really excited, uh, maybe a little like me, to tell you about some wonderful product. Then after yelling at you for, I don't know, 20 or 60 seconds, he proceeds to perform several spectacular, if not downright bizarre, demonstrations of the effectiveness of whatever product he's selling. All the while, he has continued to shout, it's the world's best cleaner. It is the most absorbent towel. It is the world's stickiest tape. You have to have it. Call now. The salesman is determined to convince you of whatever product it is. He's determined to convince you of its value. He is a a brand ambassador. He is commending the product to you with his enthusiasm and his demonstrations. Now, whether or not you have ever bought something as the result of an infomercial, I think we can all agree that nobody would buy a product that was proven, that was shown to be ineffective by a salesman who didn't believe in the product. If that fantastic cleaner doesn't go on that wine stain on your carpet and lift it right out, and that salesman doesn't really seem to think that it will, you're not going to buy the cleaner. In fact, that commercial is never going to make it to air because it would be such a disaster. As we look at First Timothy this morning, I want us to consider how Paul advises the church to avoid a similar disaster. See, the church and the individual Christians that make it can either commend or condemn the gospel with their conduct. If the church is the people that Jesus has saved, if they're the people that Jesus is shaping, we might say sanctifying, then how do our lives, both individually, but also collectively, reflect on the king we claim to follow? Does your life demonstrate or deny the gospel? What about our conduct together as a church? Are we commending the gospel to the world, or are we condemning it? This is Paul's concern in 1 Timothy 5 and 6 this morning. And it will be ours as well. Before we jump into the text, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. That as I come up here with a week of preparation and whatever abilities and gifts you might have given to me, that ultimately I can rely on you and the Holy Spirit to work not only in me, but on each one of us individually and us together as your church. That is my prayer this morning, God, that you would use me as your instrument, uh, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us, convict us, 
shape us into a church that would commend the gospel, a church that brings honor and shines light on the gospel and on our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I pray for our time moving forward in this, that we would be attentive to your word, that what I say, I would say clearly, that we would be as free from distractions as we could be amidst uh, what has become normal now. And I just thank you again for your spirit that empowers us, for your word that you've given to us that we might seek you. Uh, but maybe even more importantly than that, God, that you have come seeking us and that you have moved towards us. And it's in response to that that we move towards you and help us to just receive you in humility. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul has specifically addressed Timothy's leadership. He is he is to focus on godliness in his own life, and he's supposed to lead others to godliness by his example. He's not only to publicly proclaim the truth of the gospel, he's supposed to back it up with his life. And so the consistency of Timothy's living is supposed to testify to the truth of his teaching. In verses 1 and 2, in 5, 1 and 2, this theme continues. Timothy's leadership is supposed to be sensitive toward the individuals he is leading. Older men, younger men, older women, and younger women are all to be treated differently. Granted, there should be lots of overlap, love, kindness, patience, graciousness, but there are still meaningful differences. Now, this topic, as the other topics that I will cover this morning, it could be a sermon unto itself. But if I may just say briefly this morning that we commend the gospel by respecting the God-given differences among us. There is a line of thinking that suggests that any kind of difference is necessarily a difference in importance and value because we believe that the Bible teaches and we believe that a man can pastor a church but a woman cannot, well, we must be saying that man is better than woman. But that's, that's just simply not the case. Think of it like this. This is maybe a bit of a silly example, but I'm fond of silly examples. Uh, which is more important if you are trying to eat a steak? Is a steak knife more important or is a fork more important? Sure, you could eat a steak with just a knife or just a fork, but it's not going to be great. It's going to be a lot less than ideal because a fork, as we all know, it's great at getting food to your mouth, but you're going to have a hard time cutting a steak with a fork and a knife is great at cutting it, but uh, not so great at putting that food into your mouth. So either way, it, it doesn't work as well as it ought to. So to ask which is better is kind of a silly question because they're not supposed to be competing. They need each other. They complement each other. They're serving a purpose bigger than themselves. So the best way to eat a steak is to keep your eye on the steak. Right? The best way to honor God is to keep our eyes on him and see how we might use our differences to his glory. So Paul instructs Timothy to treat fellow Christians according to their age and gender. And frankly, this is something that he probably could have taken for granted, at least 
a shared understanding, but it's not something we can take for granted today. But to deny these differences as meaningful is to deny the goodness and wisdom of God who has designed the world in just this way. And when it comes to the gospel, believing the gospel, if we deny the goodness and wisdom of God, we are sawing the branch that we're sitting on. And we're going to quickly find that our position is crashing down because we haven't given ourselves anywhere to rest. So instead of instead of caving to these pressures that would have us deny God's good design, we rejoice in our differences. Our differences demonstrate the sufficiency, the goodness of the gospel to bridge deep divides and to build a body that is both beautiful and beneficial in its diversity. Both Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 point to this. They talk about the church being a body. And though we are one body, we have many members and each member has a special function. So the gospel creates a beautiful and beneficial diversity among us. So we commend the gospel by respecting those God-given differences. We can further commend the gospel by showing and not exploiting Generosity. So let's move ahead into 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. This is a bit of a longer section, so it might be helpful if you are really following along. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Again, that's a, a big text, and we could spend, people have spent books writing about what's in there. Uh, but for our purpose this morning, we, we demonstrate Christ's power, his unifying power, in how we care for others who belong to Christ. In the first century, a widow who was truly a widow, that is, a widow without any family at all, would have had severely limited economic opportunities. And so the church had and continues to have a responsibility to care for one another material, fi- materially, financially. James, 
The brother of Jesus wrote this. James 2.15 and 16 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The Bible, both Old and New Testaments, makes it unmistakably clear that God cares for the weak and the poor and the marginalized. God shows a special concern for widows. But... The church's generosity doesn't only extend to widows. It makes sense that the church would also be generous in providing for the needs of its leaders. Like a widow, a church leader's economic opportunities are likely very limited, albeit for different reasons. A pastor, an elder who is dedicating himself to study for teaching and preaching and shepherding the flock of God will likely have little time to earn a living. Beyond that, there is the plain fact that those elders who labor in preaching and teaching are providing something for the church. If we deem it worthwhile to pay for the food that feeds our stomachs for a day, maybe if you're like me, just a few hours, how much more worthwhile is it to pay for the food that feeds our souls and prepares us for eternity? Admittedly, this can be an awkward text to teach, and maybe that's why Ben gave it to me. Uh, but I can point back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, and Ben would surely do the same, where it is demanded that elders not be lovers of money. So while I only have so much control over whether or not I'm paid, I can certainly control whether or not I'm a lover of money. And I can also say that Hannah, Theo, Bennett, and I have been consistently blessed by the generosity of this church and i know the halliburtons would say the very same the flip side of all this and all this talk of generosity is that we don't use the generosity of the church to avoid our own responsibilities yes the church had better be generous but the christians under the church's care shouldn't abuse that generosity it it seems likely that this was happening in ephesus there are widows in need yes but those widows had families that ought to have cared for their mother if how we treat our mothers is the benchmark for how we are to treat older women then it goes without saying that we should treat our mothers well The fifth commandment is is that we honor our parents. And Jesus has very, very harsh words in the Gospel of Matthew for those who use their religion as an excuse to break that commandment. Paul here has severe words as well. Those Christians who don't provide for their relatives have denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers. Or something worse than plain unbelief based in ignorance. If you've never heard the truth, of course you can't believe. But to hear the truth and to deny it is an, another animal altogether. Ultimately, however, we must not exploit the church by neglecting our responsibilities because the church can pick up the slack. Another way we can exploit generosity is by acting as though we are entitled to it. We should not expect people to help us for free, to serve us at no cost because we're fellow Christians. A pastor shouldn't preach to earn a paycheck. A friend shouldn't lend a hand in hopes of getting paid. But whether the the help is in preaching, mowing the grass, cooking a meal, watching your dog, fixing your car, whatever it might be, we must always be mindful that the laborer deserves his wages. Yes, our service to one another is and ought to be a gift. But that doesn't mean money should never change hands between brothers and sisters, that we shouldn't be generous back to those who show us generosity. 
So we must not exploit city because it condemns the gospel. How powerful can the gospel be if it doesn't even compel families to care for themselves? How powerful can the gospel be if it doesn't keep us from from taking advantage of one another for selfish gain? Far be it from us, whether individually as Christians or collectively as Prairie View Christian Church, as part of the church, to neglect the needs of those among us or to abuse the generosity of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So first, we we commend the gospel by respecting our God-given differences. Second, we commend the gospel by giving and receiving generously, that is, without abuse or exploitation. And third, we commend the gospel by taking sin seriously. So let's pick up in verse 19 through verse 25. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Again, I feel like I need to say that there is so much here. There's so much more than I can give a few minutes to this morning. And that's why people have spent lifetimes, centuries, studying the Bible because the depth of the truth there. But as individual Christians, for us this morning, as individual Christians, and again, together as the church, we need to call sin out where we see it. Not out of bitterness, not out of hostility, not trying to hurt that sinner, but with a generous love that trusts in the power of God to stare sin in the face and defeat it. See, we demonstrate Christ's power over sin by facing it head on rather than sweeping it under the rug. If the gospel is a message of salvation and sanctification, it does us no good to pretend that sin and evil don't exist. Sin and evil are the very reason for the gospel. It is because of sin. It is because of evil that we are saved and that we are being sanctified. But when we act like sin isn't a big deal or we conceal it because we're afraid of the consequences, we implicitly deny the power of of the cross, the power of Jesus Christ over sin. Far too many churches and Christian organizations mishandle sin and scandal because they are more concerned with protecting their reputations than the actual truth. They trade short-term gains for long-term losses. And in many ways, it, it makes sense. Who among us doesn't try to hide their sin? Who among us wants to be exposed? Yet the message we proclaim, the gospel that we preach, is that sin and evil don't have the last word. They've been made powerless And so we can face them head on. David did not defeat Goliath by convincing himself and everyone around him that Goliath wasn't actually a problem. That he wasn't actually a giant. That he wasn't actually a real mighty warrior. Instead, David stepped up trusting in God's strength to face Goliath head on and deliver him. Sin is a real problem. And we are weak and helpless on our own. But the mighty God of David is the same God who has worked out our deliverance from sin 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we take sin seriously. We call it out, not so that we can be right and someone else can be wrong, but so that we can show that we believe in a God who has overcome sin, who has overcome the world. The gospel is a message of redemption. Sinners being restored by the God of love and life. A caution, however, is warranted from this text. Not every sin needs to be marched in front of the congregation. We all sin. First John says that anyone who denies sinning is a liar. This is for those, particularly leaders, who have made a habit of sin, who are not fighting sin, but have given it a foothold in their lives. These are the people that we must most seriously rebuke so that all might see the seriousness of sin. Another thing is we we need to guard against false accusations. The the fall of a Christian leader is a devastating thing. Uh, I, I know I'm young, but I know of far too many pastors who have fallen and wrecked the faith of those under their care. Nobody wants to see this happen. Nobody. And we certainly don't want to destroy someone's reputation over a lie. But again, we have to take sin seriously. It does us no good in the long run to cover for the sins of a successful leader. We can and we must deal with sin head on. We commend the gospel by doing so. We show that we believe in a God who is powerful over sin. So first we commend the gospel by respecting our differences. We commend the gospel by being generous and we commend the gospel by taking sin seriously. Lastly, we commend the gospel by renouncing our rights. Let's go ahead and look at 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. I have struggled with what to make of these verses this week. We rightly think of slavery as a terrible evil. Here, Paul doesn't say oppose slavery and fight for your freedom as a dignified image bearer of God. Instead, he essentially says, be a good slave, be good to your master, especially if he's a Christian. How can this be possible? Well, it's important for us to realize that the slavery known to Paul was different from the slavery we learn about in our history classes. Roman slavery, for one thing, wasn't race-based. Anybody could be a slave. Debt could force you into slavery. Losing a war would almost certainly force you into slavery. You could willfully enslave yourself. And sadly, you could be captured and sold into slavery. This is what happened in the transatlantic slave trade with which we are all most familiar. And it is this form of slavery in particular that the Bible very clearly condemns earlier in 1 Timothy and in Exodus 21. In fact, the punishment for this crime is death. So for Paul, there are some forms of slavery that were unconscionable. They were totally immoral and repugnant to God. So for whatever uncertainties we might have when we come to a text like this, we can be completely certain that Paul would have opposed slavery as we know it. And this is why Christians historically led the charge on ending slavery. They recognized, along with Paul, that no human being can be reduced to a piece of property. Even still, Paul isn't advocating here for the outright abolition of slavery. 
And the reason is one that can be awfully hard for our modern ears to hear. At the very beginning of Romans, Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ. In Romans 6, he talks about salvation in terms of being slaves to righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 7, 22 and 23, where we see the word bondservant, it might be better to translate it as slave. It says, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. As I said, that, that word bondservant should probably be translated as slave, but it's not. In most English Bibles, avoid the word slave because of the terrible associations we have with that word. But we who were free when called, which is every single one of us in this room who is a Christian, we are slaves of Christ. And you were bought with a price. Moving forward, Galatians, Paul again calls himself a slave of Christ. In Philippians, he refers to himself and Timothy, this Yes, this Timothy, as slaves of Christ. James calls himself a slave of Christ at the beginning of James. Peter calls himself a slave of Christ at the beginning of Second Peter. Jude, well, you know what I'm going to say. He calls himself a slave of Christ. And John is called a slave of Christ in the book of Revelation. We are rightly concerned with human dignity and how it is expressed and respected through freedom and rights and slavery. But there is something more dignifying than our personal freedom. There is something far more dignifying than political rights or having a voice. And it's that God the Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, who made all things, all things were made through him and for him and by him, he humbled himself into the form of a servant. He came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for you and for me. What is more dignifying than knowing that the God of the universe thought it worthwhile to suffer for you? What is more dignifying than knowing you belong to Christ? Now, that's not to say that Christians ought to accept slavery. (laughs) I definitely don't want anyone hearing me say that. Of course not. These very verses give us the principles we need to oppose slavery. We are to care for others, especially the weak and vulnerable. We are to show generosity and never abuse it. We are to take sin seriously, to call it out wherever it rears its ugly head. But we are also called to serve in spite of ourselves. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. And his disciples must do the same. In Mark 10 Verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. We do not live our lives looking for ways to exercise our rights and freedoms, bending other people to my wills and my desires. We are bound to one another in love to serve one another. That is the call of Christianity. And it is inherently opposed to any notions of slavery that would oppress and abuse another human being for selfish gain. We are instead called to enslave ourselves in love to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ and one another. And as we serve one another, no one ought to be left behind. Nobody's forgotten, nobody's abused, nobody's oppressed or manipulated. And this is only possible because the master we serve is perfect. He's perfect in love and perfect in justice. So we commend the gospel 
by renouncing our rights, by giving up our freedoms for the sake of one another. In Christ, I am bound to my fellow believers in service. And whether or not I'm doing a particularly good job of that doesn't change the fact that it is my God-given responsibility. So we commend the gospel first by respecting our God-given differences. We show the gospel's power to bridge very deep and wide divides. We commend the gospel by showing and not exploiting generosity. We show God's faithfulness in meeting all our needs. We commend the gospel by taking sin seriously. We show its power over the power of sin and death. And lastly, we commend the gospel by renouncing our rights. We demonstrate that we serve a God who has first served us. Now, of course, there are many ways that we can commend the gospel and many other ways we can condemn it. But because God is concerned with his glory and reputation, how we are seen matters. Surely there will be people who despise God, but let them despise God on his own terms and not because we do a terrible job of representing him. Now, there's a sense in which it's silly to compare our representation of Christ and the gospel to an infomercial. I realize that. There are actually a lot of ways in which it's potentially a bad comparison. But the truth of the matter is that we are ambassadors for Christ. And for the vast majority of people, their understanding of Jesus and the gospel is not going to come from God's word directly, but from the way the church walks God's word out. They aren't going to buy in until they've seen it in action. Just like you're deciding whether or not you're going to take a product seriously in those few minutes you're watching an infomercial, or just like you're going to decide whether or not you're going to buy any apples at the store, the world is looking to see whether or not Christianity is something to take seriously. And far too often, we have made it far too easy to write us off. As individuals and together as a church, we either commend or condemn the gospel. The question is, which are we doing? May we be shaped more by God's word to his glory than anything else. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the freedom, the freedom of the gospel, God, that we are not bound to law, that even these encouragements, these exhortations, these these charges from Paul to Timothy that have been passed down through the centuries, they don't hit us uh, as a way of measuring up. God, this isn't a matter of our salvation, that you have shown your love to us by saving us be- before we've done anything. In fact, when all we've done is sin. And it's in our sin you save us. And so as we come to these kinds of passages and if we are convicted if we're looking at ourselves, if we're wondering whether we measure up um, we know that it's never a matter of measuring up for our salvation but only because of your love and and hopefully our own love for you as mark said earlier it's it's not that we have to it's that we get to it's that we have been saved by you such a great god and and that we would in the joy of being saved, in the joy of knowing you and being known by you, that we would let that joy overflow and be seen by other people, that they might come to share in that joy. Uh, I I pray that that is our heart, that uh, any 
guilt or pressure that we would put on ourselves, that I would put on myself coming out of something like this, um, isn't a matter of my salvation, isn't a matter of our salvation. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Again, thank you for the strength that you give us. Thank you that when we come to these kinds of passages and we maybe get the sense that we aren't measuring up, there are things we could do better, that once again, that your love for us as our Heavenly Father isn't determined by what we do. It's determined by what's been done for us. And that's you have made us your sons and daughters. You have already called us your children. And uh, we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.